0: I want to ask you a question. Who was your pastor 15 years ago? Can you remember that? Maybe you haven't even been a Christian for that long. You haven't been a churchgoer for 15 years. That's okay. Think back to when you first started going to church. And uh, who was your pastor at that time? Now, I want you to assume that since that time, one of you has moved away. You're living in different places now. You don't go to the same church. But a mutual friend of yours is on vacation and they visit your old pastor. And in the course of their conversation, the pastor asks your friend how you are doing. He says, how is he really doing? How is she really doing? You know that the pastor is not asking about Um, Your circumstances. He's not asking whether you're healthy or you're making good money or whether your hair's gotten gray. He's asking about your spiritual health. He's asking whether that vibrant faith that you had 15 years ago has produced the kind of character and lifestyle that one would expect of someone who has been touched by the grace of God and inhabited by the Spirit of God. He's asking how following Jesus for the last decade and a half has changed you. That's not a far-fetched scenario for me. Because you see, I've been a pastor for 34 years. And many of the people that I have shepherded, whether in California or in Maine, are now Facebook friends. And so I get hints from them about how they are doing. I don't get to see everything that's going on in their lives, but I see enough to get a sense of their spiritual health. And sometimes I'm deeply encouraged by what I see and read, and sometimes I get genuinely concerned. Now typically, I'm not bold enough to reach out to those old friends and say, how are you doing, really? But if I could write a single letter To all those people that I have pastored over the years, I would think long and hard about what issues I should address in order to spur them on toward God's goal for their lives, which is for them to become like Jesus. And I fear that I might come across just a little harsh, more like a prophet than a pastor, And no doubt, if I wrote a letter like that, some of what I would say would sound like what another pastor wrote to his scattered flock almost 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about James, the author of the book of James in the New Testament. This book um, is actually a letter from the pastor of the First Church of Jerusalem to his former church members. Fifteen years earlier, there had been a great awakening in Israel in which thousands of Jewish people all at about the same time came to believe that Jesus was their Messiah. The proclamation of his resurrection, coupled with unignorable signs and wonders, caused the church to grow from just over a hundred to many thousands of people in a very short span of time. And one person who became a pastor in that church was James, which was significant because James was Jesus' own brother. I guess actually you would say he he was his half-brother because Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, but Jesus and James grew up in the same home. They were raised by the same earthly parents Can you imagine that? I mean, how many times do you think people said to James, why can't you be more like your brother? I wonder what it was like to have an older brother who never sinned and who thought of himself more as the son of God than as the son of Joseph and who at just about the time that everyone expected him to take over the family's carpentry business, left home and became a rabbi with a Messiah complex. Jesus said that a prophet is not honored in his hometown or in his own home. And sure enough, all of his siblings, including James, doubted that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Once they even tried to pull off an intervention And then later, they mockingly urged him to take his show to the big city. They said, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. But the Gospel of John exposes their motives when it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. But then, when you turn to the book of Acts, it says in chapter 1 that after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, those 120 or so people who believed in him joined together constantly in prayer. And that group included Jesus' brothers. So now, James is a Christian? Well, when and how did that happen? We don't know for sure. But it is striking that 1 Corinthians 15 says that one of the few individuals that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection was James. He singled his brother out. Apparently, the earlier miracles of Jesus did not dissolve James' doubts, but seeing his brother alive after he was obviously dead was irrefutable. And James became a very committed Christian who rose to leadership quickly. In fact, just seven years later, the Apostle Paul referred to James as an apostle. At that point, James was the pastor, the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He was highly respected as a man of prayer, and he earned the nickname James the Just. Over time, he became the undisputed leader of the church, with capital C, of the whole church. Acts 15 talks about a time when there was a huge argument about whether Gentiles could become Christians without becoming Jews first. And all the apostles and elders convened in Jerusalem to settle the matter. And after everyone had their say, James spoke up. He said It is my judgment. And then he told them what he thought they should do. And by the time he finished speaking, everyone said, sounds good. Let's do that. James had that much gravitas. And he continued to pastor that same local church there in Jerusalem until 62 AD. So he pastored the same church for over 30 years. And he didn't retire he was retired involuntarily. A shady Jewish high priest arrested him and demanded that he recant on his claim that Jesus was the Messiah. And when James doubled down, he was stoned to death. This guy was a hero of the faith, a martyr, From the day that he made Jesus his Lord until the day he died, James continued to thrive spiritually and to lead others to faith and to help them live as faithful disciples. But he pastored a church that was under constant persecution. And over the years, many of his parishioners were forced to flee Jerusalem and settle elsewhere. And as they did, the godly influence James had on them naturally decreased, while the ungodly influence of the societies into which they acclimated increased. They didn't just go into the world. The world got into them. And finally, 15 years into this migration and resulting recession of righteousness, James decided to intervene. He did it through this circular letter that we call the book of James. It was passed from church to church throughout the cities where his old friends had moved. And when they read it, it didn't have the same warm pastoral tone that they had such fond memories of. Oh, there were hints of the old James, but on the whole, he sounded more like a prophet than like a pastor. I've seen this happen. I have seen grandfatherly pastors become suddenly stern. They learn of bad behavior on the part of parishioners they've always been proud of and their face gets red and their voice becomes terse and they give vent to godly jealousy. They take their people to the woodshed and they call them back to integrity, to righteousness, to righteousness to Christ-likeness. That's what James does in this letter. And as is always true when we study God's word, it is going to be just as relevant to us as it was to his original readers. It's gonna be as if James was reading our Facebook posts from the other side of the globe two millennia ago. In fact, you're gonna recognize a lot of what he says because this is one of the most quotable books in the Bible. Let me, let me show you. Just start reading in verse one of chapter one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just stop there because I think that's such a striking way for the brother of Jesus to introduce himself. No doubt if someone else were introducing James, they would emphasize the family connection. And, and maybe th- there were two, There were times earlier when James thought of Jesus as his brother, but now Jesus is his Lord and James is his servant. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. You may know that Israel is comprised of 12 tribes. So it's likely, it's not certain, but it's likely that James was writing specifically to Jewish Christians who, like the Israelites of the Old Testament, were exiled to other nations. They were scattered. The first Jewish Christians lived and worshiped together in Jerusalem under James' leadership, but now they are scattered among the nations. And no sooner does he greet them than he begins to exhort them with words that are familiar to many of us. Like in verse two, "'Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters.'" whenever you face trials of many kinds. You've probably heard those words before. And if there's anything that we have in common, all of us, it is that we go through trials. And it's natural for us to view them negatively as if they get in the way of what God wants for us. But James is gonna teach us here in chapter one and also over in chapter five that trials are actually beneficial to us and that persevering through them Will result in great rewards. And then we're going to read in, in verse 5: uh, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You recognizing these words? But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Again, these are well-known scriptures. But James has so much more to say about wisdom in chapter 3 and prayer in chapter 5. And then when we get to verse 13 of chapter 1, we're going to read, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin And sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. You may have read those words before. But believe me, they're mild compared to what James is going to teach us in chapter 4 about sin and repentance. And in chapter 5 about helping each other get back on track when we fall. And you've probably heard verses 19 and 20 before. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is the first of several times in this letter that James talks about the power of the tongue and why we must be relentless in trying to bring it under control. And then in verse 22, we read still more familiar words. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it they will be blessed in what they do. James is gonna hit this theme of obedience again and again. He's gonna hit it so hard that we are going to struggle to reconcile what he says with Paul's teaching that we're saved by faith alone and not by works. You've heard what James wrote in chapter two, verse 26. Faith without deeds is dead. He's even gonna say a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That bugged Martin Luther so much that he wasn't so sure the book of James should even be in the Bible. But we're going to see how it does harmonize perfectly with Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone and why James felt compelled to emphasize good works. And we're going to read an awful lot in this book about money. You may have heard or read before the beginning of chapter 2 where James says, my brothers and sisters, uh, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James wrote very confrontational words about wealth and poverty and favoritism and false security. And we're going to hear what he has to say. So you see, James is a book that most of us are at least somewhat familiar with. But over the next two months, we are going to go deeper on finding joy in suffering and praying with power and taking sin more seriously and getting control of our tongue and putting our faith into action and accepting God's view of money and living lives of true wisdom. I mean, this is nitty-gritty stuff. That's why we're calling the series, nitty-gritty. I mean, this is, we're getting right into where we really live. And I think what you might notice as we go through it is that it's going to sound a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. And that's because James alludes to that sermon, Christ's most famous sermon, more than the whole rest of the New Testament combined. James is also the first New Testament book to be written It was written earlier even than any of the four Gospels. What a treasure to have someone who knew Jesus like James did teach us how to follow him. Even if he has to get in our face at times to shake us out of the worldliness that we are so prone to being polluted by. If we are teachable, I promise you, we're going to be more like Jesus two months from now, than we are today. Now, we're about to end this online gathering, but where you are right now is probably a great place to get in a little Bible reading. Do you have have your Bible there with you now? If not, you still have the whole book of James because I put it on the White Pine Church app. If you just tap on the Bible button, you'll find it there. This isn't a long book. It's uh, just five chapters long, 108 verses, six pages or so in a typical Bible. It's shorter than most magazine articles. So you could read it, the whole book, in 15 minutes. If you choose to do that right now, you will not absorb everything the Spirit of God wants to teach you in this one reading, but you will begin to take in these words that are gonna be repeated throughout this series and the more times you read them, the deeper they will penetrate into your heart and the more they will impact your life. So let me pray for you and then you can grab a second cup of coffee and get to reading. And then next week, bring your Bible with you to church and we will continue to sit under the God-breathed teaching of this godly man, James and grow closer to Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, um, as we begin this um, new series here at the beginning of 2024, we pray that you will fulfill all of the purposes you have for us in it. We know that we're not here by accident. You are leading us here, and you want to change us You want to transform us through this, and we trust you to do that. I I pray that you will do that for every single person uh, that's a part of White Pine Church, for everybody that just happens to come through the doors. Just help us to become more of who you created us to be. And I know that today, all of us have different needs that maybe have nothing to do with what we've talked about today. You know our hearts, you know our circumstances, and I pray that whatever each person has, as a personal need, will be met by you today, directly or through others in the body of Christ. And I know that this week, we're going to rub shoulders with other people who need to experience your love and understand your truth. And so we ask that you would use us as conduits of both to them. In Jesus' name.